Looking down on Earth from space, you see the vibrant blues of the oceans and the land gradient from a rich red of the deserts to the greens of the forests. But as the light from the sun fades, darkness sets across the planet. Darkness so dark it's virtually black. Black except for spatterings of bright white specks. Specks of light that pepper the coastlines and snake across countries. Every snake leads to a bright, burning beacon of light. Millions of specks all on top of each other. These organic shapes form our cities. Cities that have been there long before electricity. Athens, for example, has been inhabited by ambitious, innovative humans for over 7,000 years. Things have changed a lot over the past several millennia, and arguably even more so in the past decade. Technology and globalisation have made cities more appealing than ever before, with 55% of humans living in cities, and it's forecast 85% will live in cities by 2100. We talk with Google about how they have a keen eye on the next chapter of how cities work. They offer a remarkable opportunity to meaningfully improve quality of life. It's going to be fascinating over the next several decades because these things don't happen fast uh, to, to watch that unfold. And our mission is to help accelerate that. And we feature an exclusive chat with Barry Barton, the authority on cities. And I spend my professional life thinking about how cities work and anticipating how people who live in cities are going to live in the future. And the way they are today could be the way they stay. I mean, this is not new news. That's why I'm probably quite a disappointing candidate on this podcast is because I'm obsessed by the future, but I don't think it would be that futuristic. Then Steve Sammartino joins us again to give some insight into how our lives might be better the further away from cities we get. I go in their self-drive car, the two days a week to, you know, two hours away to the city, relaxing, working, being entertained in their driverless car, and they live somewhere near the beach and they're much happier, and they can still do their work. You know, virtual reality in the next five years, it'll be like you, your body won't even know the difference of whether or not you're in that meeting room. This is Future Sandwich, the podcast that has a sandwich with people making the future happen today. Welcome to episode 10. Cities Never Sleep. We are going to unpack how cities are transforming all over the world, becoming more dense, more connected and more efficient, for the most part. Google's Alphabet has made several acquisitions in companies that are focusing on the cities of the future. All of them are run through sidewalk labs, led by former Deputy Mayor of New York, Dr. Daniel Doktoroff. We are sort of in a new era, and we're just beginning to realize how powerful it might be. You know, if you look back over the last couple hundred years in cities, there have been three major sort of technological revolutions in cities. You know, one was the steam engine in the early part of the 1800s that brought people to cities, industrialized them, made modern sanitation possible. Uh, A second was the introduction and adoption of the electric grid, which made cities vertical, made them 24-hour, and made modern communication possible. The third was the automobile, which had a much more decidedly mixed impact on cities. But we're at the dawn of a fourth. And that really is one where you see a set of technologies that are converging all at one moment 
we're all connected. Uh, we're connected with high-speed fiber networks, with smartphones. Things are changing because we now have the ability to monitor things through location services and sensors and other things in real time. Computing power and the intelligence of computers is growing, and that is literally going to change almost everything that occurs in cities, from the way we move around to the infrastructure we build to the buildings and types of buildings that we create. Ultimately, it's going to affect the way we govern and interact with each other, as well as sort of the set of social programs like education and public safety and health that are so fundamental to, uh, to society. And, and we believe that when you actually look at all of these technologies and you begin to imagine how they play out, they offer a remarkable opportunity to meaningfully improve quality of life. It's going to be fascinating over the next several decades because these things don't happen fast uh, to, to watch that unfold. And our mission is to help accelerate that. This mission isn't supported by everyone. Author of book Against a Smart City, Adam Greenfield, is one of those people. Jane Jacobs talks gorgeously about what she calls the sidewalk ballet, this sort of spontaneous mixture of different kinds of people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, intermingling on the sidewalks of New York City. And to my mind, that is fundamentally what cities are about. Cities are, are an engine to expose us to difference, and, and we grow by way of our exposure to that difference. What truly concerns me about the smart city rhetoric is the degree to which it divides us into market segments and it allows us to, to shrink ever further into the confines of, of cognitive and, and social bubbles. You know, with all due respect, if you want to live that way, then go live in the suburbs. That's not what cities are for. That's not what cities do for us. To deploy technologies that begin to erode that diversity and mixture is to undermine the very value proposition of a great city. So is this romantic, spontaneous enjoyment of a city going to be clouded by technology? I don't think it is as dire as Adam mentions, but our connected screens are dominating our attention as we walk through cities now. I can only imagine that will increase as billions of sensors capture data about everything from our coffee temperature to our train having a seat available on carriage number three or the need for an umbrella at 4.03pm. So, are we going to continue jamming into cities? Let's talk with future sandwich favourite Steve Sammartino. <laughs> you know, I, and I, this was it. That was this was in my um, book, The Great Fragmentation. I disagree with pretty much every demographer around the world. <laughs> it's a pretty radical position to take, right? And they all say that we're all going to move into cities, and I agree with that. But I disagree on one thing. I think that cities will continue to get bigger, but I also think that regional satellite centres we'll see a boom that no one sees coming, right? No one sees it coming. Yeah, Melbourne and Sydney and Shanghai and all these cities around the world will continue to get denser because cities are like little possibility factories, right? They're, they're awesome places where a whole lot of things can happen because there's interactions and commerce and ideas and culture and all of those things. But if you look at the trajectory of human labour, you can the, the tool of the day defines where we live, right? And this is, in four words, the history of human labour. It goes like this, spear... Seed, spanner, silicon, right? And isn't it lucky that they all start with S, right? And so the, the only one of those that can, where labour and location can be separate is silicon. Right, spear, where are you going to live? Where the herd is? You want to eat tomorrow? Follow that herd, right? Uh, seed, that's, you know, villaging, the agricultural era. Spanner, the industrial era. 
there's some, you know, pieces in between that. But these are the fundamental sort of shifts we've seen. You know, the Spanner was all about the city, and we're still very much in a Spanner industrial society. But each layer of evolution is like a technology stack. And so the next stack is silicon. We build a metastructure on top of the infrastructure. And, but for the first time in history, where you are and where the work is can change places. You don't have to be, and we already see it with, that, with outsourcing overseas. We already see it with uh, citizen journalism. We already see it with um, holding up Periscope and live streaming, you know, a beach cast while I'm down surfing, showing people on the other side of the world, you know, what the beach looks like in Australia today. Right. So with the self-drive car, the driverless car, with uh, being able to work from home, people are going to move away from cities. Cities are bloody expensive places to live. Right? I can go for half the price and live near a beautiful river, mountainside ocean, be two hours away from a major city, and that's why I think satellite cities around major cities are going to be populated, and that middle suburban ground is going to get lost. Everything in business in the middle ground is being lost. You know, it's that melting of the, of the bell curve. Right? And even in pricing, you see it. it's really high price. You know, it's Louis Vuitton and Costco. Right? The middle ground is getting lost, and I think that middle suburban ring will be lost. People live right in the city, but I think we're going to see extraordinary growth in satellite cities one or two hours away from major cities in nice environmental areas where there's things of great beauty. And offices will, you know, big companies, they're driven by balance sheets. They will say, you know what, we've got this office in the city, it's costing us you know, $10 million a year or $5 million a year to run. I'll tell you what, why don't we shrink it to one third of the size? We'll have our meeting days one third of the week and you can work from home. You're gonna have happier employees who aren't fighting traffic. They go in their self-drive car, the two days a week to, you know, two hours away to the city, relaxing, working, being entertained in their driverless car and they live somewhere near the beach and they're much happier and they can still do their work. You know, virtual reality in the next five years, it'll be like you, your body won't even know the difference of whether or not you're in that meeting room. So silicon will enable a boom in where we live in places away from major cities as well. And that's what the demographers are missing because demographers do one thing that all long-term planners do. They look at the stats and the trajectory, but they don't understand forks in the road. And the forks in the road are always driven by technology and technology curve jumps. So is this curve we have to jump as steep as we really think? I'm Barry Barton. I co-founded Right Angle Studio, uh, which is an agency that started about 12 years ago and we do a lot of work in urban strategy and I spend my professional life thinking about how cities work and anticipating how people who live in cities are going to live in the future. And uh, which cities do you reckon give um, the best glimpse into the future? Which one do you reckon it will be? Well, I'm sitting in Tokyo right now and Tokyo has 38 million people that live in it. And then the nearest city to that is Delhi, which has 25 million. So it is hugely huger than any other city. And it's incredibly civil and well-organized and humane. And I think we need to look at what happens in Tokyo through a wash of what Japanese culture actually is. And it's a very different kind of behavioral set to very different values to, to Western life. But there is so much that we can learn from Tokyo in terms of how to live well in smaller, in smaller circumstances, how to be more sustainable, not just environmentally. I think that's the kind of largely boring and easy stuff in a social way. You know, how do we get on well? How are we tolerant? How are we well-mannered? And it's just an incredibly inspiring city in that regard. You know, it's interesting thinking about how the Japanese just seem to be so far ahead in so many ways. Like 
you know, 20 years ago, we would all ridicule Japanese people for taking too many photographs. Why are they photographing all of this stuff that they're experienced? And now that's exactly what we're doing. We're just running a couple of decades late. And so it's a really kind of interesting place, uh, which I think is most valuable because sure, it has all of this futuristic stuff. Um, but it also has some very kind of traditional notions, and these are resolved very beautifully through the way people behave and the way that the city's designed. And so what about the number of people living in our cities? We asked Barry Barton which way the graph is heading. The chart will definitely go up um, in terms of urbanised population. Um, you know, at the moment there are 10 megacities in the world, so that's more than 10 million people. But by 2030, which is not so far away, there'll be 41 of them. Well, that's the anticipation. So let's, let's just say as a starting point, yes, more people are going to live in cities. But I think the question you're asking is, how are they going to live in the city? Is it going to be the traditional idea of a CBD with a core or a heart and everyone kind of faces that and has aspirations to live closer to it, which I think is very much the Melbourne model. You know, the the CBD in Melbourne is this very dreamy, idealised thing. And if Melbourne doesn't have a healthy CBD with retail and culture and social life, then it seems like the whole city is sick. Um, So I think that model, just because most cities are built that way, will endure and be the most popular city model. But the environmental tax of being in a city like that, is, is really high. It involves a lot of traffic. And so I think there will be increasingly this new model of, yeah, decentralised city or a nodal city is the word that we use in, in urban design at the moment, yeah, which describes these kind of communities which are far out from the CBD. But what I love about them is they don't have an aspiration to be in the CBD. And you actually find these in Sydney already, like out in the um, western suburbs, um, places like Rouse Hill, where People have, you know, they moved into a typical master plan kind of community, but, well, they didn't move in there. Their parents or their parents' parents moved in there. So it's three generations old and they don't want to live in the city and they are offended when you create some, like, capital F funky laneway with faux graffiti on it to try and make them feel like it's a cool urban experience. There's something very beautiful and suburban and embraced by people out there. So I think there'll be more of those kind of nodal cities but it's very easy to romanticize the idea of living in Torquay and, you know, just getting on, the, getting on your computer and doing work that way. But I don't know if it's your experience. I find it really hard to work that way. I mean, if you and I were sitting face to face right now in Melbourne, this would probably be a better feeling and easier conversation. I'm not saying it's bad, but that's the reality of it, you know. So I think that this, um, this dream of everyone working remotely is that it's a dream. You know, it's interesting seeing that a company like Google uh, don't do telecommuting anymore. They try and have as many meetings face-to-face as they possibly can. And I think that's a real kind of signal that we're realising technology is great for so many things. But at this stage, it's a pretty poor replacement for a lot of types of, of interaction. And so as fast as we're kind of running, we're still gravitating towards these very sort of social and and human interactions. So a lot of our advice to developers, um, people who are building buildings, you know, a skyscraper will last for 50 to 100 years, 100 years if it's well built. Um, You kind of need to get that right. You need to understand what people are going to be doing in that far horizon. And we always just go back to the really kind of safe, solid human stuff, which is 
proved itself to be fit for purpose for you know five thousand years and even even longer, which are really kind of old-fashioned virtues of being able to focus, being able to communicate people, being able to see yourself in a group, being able to be an individual. I mean, this is not new news. That's why I'm probably quite a disappointing candidate on this podcast, is because I'm obsessed by the future, but I don't think it would be that futuristic. Although we did think we'd be living like the Jetsons by now. There are smart people with deep pockets working on making our cities smarter, bigger and better in almost every sense. Whether they actually do benefit everyone is yet to be seen. So whether it's a mega city or a nodal city, it is the people that make it great. So really it's up to us to design our cities of the future. This has been Future Sandwich, Episode 10, Cities Never Sleep. A huge thank you to Dr Daniel Doctoroff from Cyborg Labs. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at DanDoctoroff. Author Against the Smart City, Adam Greenfield, for his interview. You can buy his book on Amazon and find a link in the show notes at futuresandwich.com. And links to follow Steve Sammartino and buy his books are on the site as well. You can connect with him today on Twitter at Sammartino, S-A-M-M-A-R-T-I-N-O. And big thanks to Barry Barton. You're a sensational candidate for the show. We really appreciate your time. So Future Sandwich Live is happening at Future Assembly in Melbourne on Friday, December 2nd. If you'd like to come down, you can use the code FUTUREsandwich for 20% off your tickets. It'll be a great show. We have Nick Hodges from News Corp, Sammy you heard earlier in the episode, and Georgia Beatty, CEO of Startup Victoria. And remember to follow Future Sandwich on Twitter and Instagram and give me a shout on Twitter, at T McCubbin. Always keen to get your feedback on the show and where we take it next. And that's a wrap. I'll see you next time.